0: From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: Welcome to the big event and welcome back. I, Dean Hey, good to be here. Great to have you here on Chuck Profit Day. I'm really excited. Yeah, Chuck is amazing. He's a Bay
0: Area treasure, a little bit underrated. Not a lot of people may know about him, but he's a great singer-songwriter. He's been here forever. He writes about the city. He really celebrates the city, the,
1: both the bad and the good. You say celebrates, and I I love that description because um, I listen to his music, and I feel like I want to be here. I want to be part of this battle. I want to make San Francisco better. Um, He just has this positive approach without being Pollyannish. I really like the guy. What's a track we can play to just kind of get people started, get them in a Chuck Prophet mood?
0: One of my favorites is uh, Willie Mays' Up At Bat, and that's from his album Temple Beautiful. And that album, when it came out in 2012, it's all about San Francisco people and places I remember he rented a tour bus, got a bunch of his fans on board, and drove it around the city like any other tour bus, except he told completely made-up stories at all the <laughs> spots, which, you know, made me a fan for life. Here's Willie Mays' is Up At Bat.
2: Oh, someone said Laugh Hey, Laugh and just what you laughing at? She said I'm only laughing at myself.
0: The the beautiful thing about Chuck Prophet is even though you don't know him, he's one of those artists that's just kind of waiting there to be discovered. He has this amazing body of work and, you know, sometimes you get tired of listening to the same things over and over and you're searching for something new and his stuff is just there waiting for all these people to find it.
1: Yeah, I, I just love his work. I met him a few years ago. I didn't know that much about him, and then after I met him, since then I don't think I've listened to anybody more, so I'm excited to have him come in. I also love it because he's coming in um, we're going to talk a little bit about Chuck Prophet, but we're going to talk a lot about the Rubinous. This is officially uh, the Bands We Follow episode, and he's excited about this Berkeley band that influenced him, the Rubinous. Right,
0: a totally forgotten band that were on Berserkly Records, um, which had Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, Earthquake, the Great Kin Band. It's kind of the piece of Bay Area music history that's a little bit forgotten. So you know he's bringing it back to the surface and he's made this album in the style of their first two albums which are
1: really real like cult classics so chuck Prophet worked on this album with the rubenews from here out august 23rd on yep rock records i think our good friend Joel selvin is writing an article about this for the chronicle he's been following their story this whole time okay so we'll tweet that out to look for that we're your concierge for culture in the bay area i'm peter hartlob and this is the big event Welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome back, Ideen Vaziri. Hello, how are you? I am great, and welcome to our guest, Chuck Prophet. Great to see you again. Great to see you at the Chronicle.
2: Oh, it's, it's a treat for me to be down here in the basement. And, uh, it's a building I've romanticized
1: over the years, <laughs> for sure. Really? Tell me more about that.
2: Well, I mean, I, I actually studied journalism for about 10 minutes uh-huh. um, at uh, Diablo Valley College. And then nice. I transferred to San Francisco State, and uh, I wasn't, you know, I mean, it wasn't my gift uh, by any means, but I definitely romanticize it, you know, probably from watching all the presidents, men, and you, Jason Robar's go, "Where's the goddamn story?" <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: you still, you, you're still a great storyteller, but you just applied it to a different, uh, different format. I think. Well, that's well, we just walked
2: by uh a window, you know, yeah, uh, and I looked. I said to Ideen, I said, Is that the editorial mm-hmm. meeting? I said, Yeah, yeah, everybody was around a table, yeah, with yellow legal pads. Yeah. <laughs>
1: There's a lot of meetings. Um, most journalism movies are super inaccurate, so like the desks are always clean. Um, people who are like copy editors sometimes have their own office, you oh, know, right. slowly <laughs> like copy editors. Yeah, we're, we're all working just wherever, uh, wherever they put us, but um. But the yelling in journalism movies is, is pretty accurate. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. It's yeah. good to know. <laughs> well, good to have you here. I'm I, uh, excited to talk to you a little bit about music and about the Rubenews, um, new new album coming out. You're a huge fan of, of the News and uh, we'll get into your history with that. But I, I wanted to just start, what's a track to start off with? Uh, yeah, so, you're trying track? to get me into the Rubin News. This is kind of a. Well,
2: I mean, we could start with the first track of their n- new record, From Home. It's called yeah. Do You Remember, which is a song I wrote with Tommy Dunbar, their guitar player. And, you know, um, it's kind of a song that really chronicles their story as a band.
1: And this is a band you've been following since you were pretty young. I wanted to go way back, even maybe pre-Rubinous. Okay. And what was your first kind of musical awakening experience, your first memory of listening to and connecting to music?
2: Well, uh, the radio, you know, no doubt about it. You know, the AM radio in the car. Um, I had an older sister. She had some hip boyfriends. We had pretty good records, the Hoople, you know, Creedence, Stones. Um, but um, I grew up in a town just on the other side of the orange curtain called La Habra, California. Uh And um, I always tell people that it's the kind of place where if you shook an orange tree, you know, five guitar players would fall out. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, so everybody I knew played guitar. I was in a band like when I was 12 and everybody I knew played guitar. And um, yeah, I mean, we were just kind of surfer kids and played guitar and, but the idea of, you know, of playing music as a vocation or whatever that was completely foreign to me I mean I, I wouldn't have known that that was a, a possible really until punk rock came along yeah and then you know that started to erase the line between the audience and the stage and there you have it yeah I moved up here with my family when I was 16 moved up here to, to uh, the East Bay uh-huh. my father got transferred he was an executive at Avery label and uh, he was given this territory, and we came up here, and um, lucky for me, you know, I had my kite up, and the wind changed direction. I'm like 16, I got a driver's license, came into the city to see this, the dead Kennedys at the Mabuhai, and, you know, I tuned into CalEx every Tuesday night for the Maximum Rock and Roll show, and to find out where the gigs were. And I went out to the Temple Beautiful at 1839 Geary, and saw, you know, just tons of bands completely different.
1: Yeah. Your timing was fantastic. I
2: think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Were, were you thinking, uh, you said, you know, when you were 12, 13, 14, there didn't seem like a path for it. Did you feel like you were good at it? I mean, did uh, you feel did you feel like it was something that, that, that you could uh, keep on doing and getting better?
2: I had that kind of arty feeling, but I didn't really know any way to, you know, I didn't really know about personal expression or you know i mean it wasn't i mean i always tell people that san francisco was my education because mm-hmm. when i was 18 i got a gig playing with this comedian barry sobel who would do like a musical part of his act you know where he would do Mick jagger and he would do things and yeah and um as a result of that I saw all the comedians you know I mean I saw like Dana Carvey and Robin Williams and repeatedly and Bobby Slate so and Paul Townsend Punchline Punchline Other Cafe, Cafe. Yeah. there were some other places like in on the on the peninsula, or maybe uh, San Leandro or whatever. And, and what
1: exactly were you doing for? Barry Sobel I Soble? played guitar,
2: and he <laughs> Barry Sobel would do like a, you know, I think "Start Me Up" was a hit at the time, and he would do that and change the lyrics, and and it was like one of my real first professional gigs.
1: Yeah. How old are you at the time? Like
2: probably eighteen, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've been playing bands and stuff, but we were just splitting. You know burritos three ways you know? <laughs> what, what was
0: it about punk rock that drew you in what was it about the Mabuhay scene compared to the fillmore scene that that worked for you
2: oh man i mean you saw people laying it on the line you saw people you know singing their own songs you saw you know people who maybe had only just picked up their instruments but you know like you know there were bands like the mutants that i couldn't tell if any of them could really play <laughs> but they were like uh you know, they were like just a pile of dirty, like a pile of like a thrift store, you know, laundry, and uh, and just crazy. You know, yeah. and really inventive, and and there was a, you know, and you started to see some of the same people at the gigs, so you know, you felt a little bit of. A, I guess what we would now call community. Uh-huh. I didn't know what to call it back then. So
0: what was what was the point you went from the comedy clubs to the punk clubs and doing your own thing rather than like this weird Al Yankovic type? Oh, no, I'd always,
2: I always played in bands. I was in a band called Wild Game. And I played with some older dudes and really around, uh, you know, but I never really had a touring gig, although we went and played. When I was 18, we went and played for two weeks in Calgary, um at a place called the national for a week and another place called the calgarian which was like in february three sets and it was kind of our hamburger timing, three yeah. sets a night and you know we didn't have the songs we would play roadrunner for like 20 minutes you know until our arms just fell <laughs> off you know but but yeah
1: that was kind of a i don't know did you, did you fall in love with san francisco right away Absolutely. I, I associate you with San francisco Absolutely. as strongly as any musician who's well even when i now. was in the
2: suburbs you know with my parents and going to high school i remember seeing jelloby offers's campaign <laughs> for mayor on the news you yeah. know,
1: we have photos of that down here yeah and photo. it's <laughs> and it's it's
2: a moment it's a lot like the moment when i saw Iggy pop on the dinosaur show it wasn't like oh i want to be a songwriter it was like what do i got to do to hang out with people like this <laughs> and that was that was my first feeling really more than more than i want to be a great you know i want to be Jimmy Page or whatever yeah so yeah, yeah. and then i was in bands and then uh, i mean i guess my first you know real touring gig and making records was with a band called Green on Red for maybe i don't know they said we were going to do a 2 week tour of Sweden and that turned into like a 10 year tour of duty <laughs> and so i think we made like 10 records or something and um, had a lot you know a lot of experiences a lot of different producers a lot of different you know places and
0: you, so sig- they were on slash which was associated with Warner Brothers and that was kind i imagine that was kind of a low level major label experience
2: yeah, the band I was in, we opened for them, and, and they pulled up in a, in a van, you know, like a late model, the and I, I remember they had a gas card, and I, and I was really impressed with that, you know. <laughs> and, um, and they said, hey, you know, uh, I went, to, well, actually, I went to go see them play in Los Angeles, and I called them up, and they said, yeah, if you want to come down, that's cool, but uh, why don't you just bring a guitar? So I sat in with them, and at the end of the gig, you know, Dan Stewart, the lead singer, said, "As far as I'm concerned, he's in the band." You know, <laughs> like they going to take a vote. You know, <laughs> and they said, "You'll need a passport because we're going to Sweden in like two weeks." And so,
0: next thing you know, you're on the cover of the NME. Well, yeah, we are on the cover of Melody Maker, we're on yeah. the cover of Sounds. Uh, we and you guys really took off in England. That was yeah. The first time,
2: I mean, we went to that Swedish tour, and and then. It was these. There were these two young promoters, and they said, um, um, "If you guys want to play in London on the way back, uh, we could arrange that." You know, we said, "Well, sure, that sounds cool." And they said, "Okay, well, here's where you're going to go." And they wrote it down on a piece of paper, and we flew into Gatwick and take the tube here. And ta- oh, and by the way, this is very important. You need to pick up a carton of Rothman Blue cigarettes.
1: You know? <laughs>
2: more will be revealed. And, <laughs> and so we had, you know, this hotel in, the, in uh, Earl's Court, which was like a what they call, an, I guess, a bed sit in England. You know, we all crammed in there. And the guy came by the next day to give us our whatever our, our marching orders and he said do you guys have the cigarettes we went, oh, we didn't get that we didn't we didn't understand that he was he was not happy <laughs> and we went and we played a gig in Piccadilly Circus at a place called Gossips which was like a um, I, I guess it was like a goth kind of club this would have been the time of like specimen and and um, it was down in a basement and uh, when we got there, there were like these four Scottish dudes who were pretty inebriated, drinking like ale, you know, which is kind of like there's these tins of beer in in England that have like shapely women on them. I don't know what that, what it's called, but it's and that and that band went up and played before us, and like by the second song they were trying to get feedback and leaning against the amps and the guy, the singer, was kind of spinning around. He'd got the mic cable wrapped around his ankles and he fell. And and it was just kind of noise. And after three songs it was like not really happening. And I remember the bartender was like a seven-foot tall cross-dressing guy. And he just was calmly like, you know, pouring <laughs> a beer behind the bar and he was watching what was going on. And then he just took it and he put his bar towel on and then he went over to the... Band and he said, "Okay, let's go. let that's, that's enough." And he turned the amps off and let's go, get off the stage. Well, that was the Jesus and Mary Chain.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that was
2: their first London gig. Wow. And then we went on, you know, and there was a rented back line. You know, there was just drums. They were just magically there. We didn't. Know, we didn't ask any questions. You know, and we played a set. And as we were playing, you know, flash pots were going off. There were probably about thirty-five people there, but you know, half of them were from the weekly papers you know and that was our first experience with any of that and we right. so we ended up in the weekly papers and then I don't know We you know, one thing led to another and we ended up with a British record deal and we didn't tell the American label that we signed the deal and we were you know we didn't understand that stuff <laughs> and, uh, and that was when we signed a phonogram and, and we ended up you know making a couple records for them and then got dropped and we went to another label and repeated that for a while so we had a we had a pretty good run.
1: What were you listening to uh, early? I mean, in those kind of 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old year age, that era?
2: Um, Well, I was listening to the radio. I was listening to the radio in the car. KNEW was the country station. Nice. And I can't remember. I guess KFRC would have been playing oldies. Yeah. So I would go back you know, between Johnny Rivers and driving my life away or whatever and that yeah. was you know and then also um you know um the clash and um you know a lot of uh a lot of 60s stuff
1: uh, do you remember when you heard the Rubenes the first time
2: well they played in my high school really yeah nice yeah they played in my high school and um You know, they got up on stage, and the first thing they did was this kind of a cappella thing. Bum, 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 bum,
1: bum, you know, weird. Did you know them at the time? No, no, I mean,
2: I I, I was kind of aware of them, you know, but they came out, they did this a cappella thing, and then they go into their hits. You know, they're not that much older than me, but they felt like another generation. Yeah. You know, because here, you know, these guys are in their early 20s, they'd already played... 56 shows opening for Elvis Costello on the Armed Forces Tour, they'd already been on American Bandstand, they, you know, they were in the pages of Tiger Beat, mm-hmm. um, which seemed like they'd seemed, they, they seemed amazingly grown up to me, you know, because they had made records, they wrote their own songs, and they did all that stuff. You know, later I came to understand that for them, being Bay High kids in Berkeley. Um Berkeley was like the one place in the universe where if you were in Tiger Beat and you were on American Bandstand, you just kinda kept it to yourself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, because the Trotsky girls
0: didn't really you know that had no currency. Yeah. Right. And they were on uh Berserkly Records, <clears throat> which was uh Matthew King Kaufman's label. Absolutely. Also had uh was it Jonathan Richman yeah. and um who else did it? but La- La- the Greg Ken Band Greg Jonathan band, Richman? That's right, yeah,
2: I think Earthquake would have been the first band, um, an incredible label, a lot like um, Stiff Records, you know. Um, in fact, I believe that Stiff Records was really inspired by Berserkly Records. They they saw what they were able to do, and they had a little hit with Road Runner in England, you know, um, Road Runner, of course by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. And they put out that Modern Lover's record, which had been sitting on a shelf gathering dust at Warner Brothers, I think, for like four years. And even when it came out, it was still way ahead of its time. You know? right, yeah. But Matthew had a vision, and, and he, Matthew had a band called Earthquake, and the principal guy in Earthquake was Robbie Dunbar, just a very gifted musician, arranger, guitar player, writer. And here comes Robbie's little brother, you know, his teenage little brother, Tommy Dunbar and his band. you know that uh, played the opening of an auto parts store on university and you know <laughs> pushed their equipment there in shopping carts. <laughs> and they said, Oh, you know, Tommy Tommy's a writer. Now we've got another writer. We've got this other band, the Rubenus, and maybe we can market them to, you know, the teen magazines. And they actually out of the gate had a top forty hit, you know, with I think We're Alone Now, which was kind of amazing. And they were still teenagers. Yeah. So they say when we're together and watch how you play
0: they don't understand, and so we're running just as fast as we can. Holding on to one another's hand.
2: Try to get away. Um so yeah, they were a big influence on me. I pro I'm although I'm not like a pop guy, I'm not like a power pop you know, nerd. i there was something about them that i i just thought that that's what a band should be you know it was like they tommy and john would sing in unison oftentimes which i consider kind of the cavern club approach mm-hmm. you know and it just had more power they were a two guitar based drum band they would do that a cappella stuff, you know, they would come out and do an encore and they would do a, you know, the theme from The Good, Bad and the Ugly, <laughs> don't walk to whoa you know, just weird stuff. Um, and I thought, oh man, when I, you know, I can't wait to go out into the world because I can't imagine what's out there, you know if these guys are in my backyard well it turns out
0: there wasn't really anybody else <laughs> out there like that you know so you just ended up following them to every show yeah I, I saw them
2: a lot and I was in bands that opened for them and yeah and you know when we talk about following bands I mean even though they made two you know before the end of the 80s they made these two what I consider classic uh, pop records um, they um You know, it looked like with Berserkly, when Berserkly Records became more of a running interest for maybe the Greg Kin band and getting Greg on the radio, a lot of those bands got pushed to the wayside, and it looked like there wasn't going to be a third record. So these guys didn't even have, you know, driver's licenses, you know. So I heard from somebody, oh, I heard Tommy and John are going to move to L.A., and... They went down to L.A., the, you know, the, the the lead singer, John Rubin, who's an incredible singer, I mean, he's like a Frankie Valley guy, not a songwriter, but incredible singer, and he and Tommy moved down to L.A., and I don't know, they made one record for Warners that was produced by Todd Rundgren, and it had Utopia on it, and they just kind of rolled over them, and it didn't really sound like the Rubin news to us, it had a lot of keyboards, and...
1: Theme and, song from *Revenge of the Nerds* yeah, in then, there I mean, somewhere. And then the if people—if
2: if they didn't confuse people enough already—yeah, they were doing a lot of ghost vocal gigs, like for Kim Fowley, who they refer to as Fal Kimley, <laughs> and they would like for um, for the LGBT community down there. Yeah. I guess you would call it now. They would do ghost vocals you know, I'm so pretty, or whatever, yeah. and Tommy talks about some of the material, and, and they would do it at like three in the morning, they would do these ghost vocal gigs for Kim Fowley, and they did, you know, and, and John ended up in a, a doo-wop group called the Mighty Echoes, and they were like on the, they were on some sitcoms, you know, yeah. like delivering pizza and breaking into song, and and so I kept up with these guys, and I heard that Tommy had a song on the Modern English record, and oh, okay, you know, and and those are what I consider the missing years. And one of the things that happened in those missing years is they were down in L.A. in a studio, and and somebody came from across the hall and, and, and said, "Hey, we're cutting a demo over here. We hear you guys are singers, you know." And they're like, "Well, yeah, and go, yeah, we got some. There's a little some money in it for you if you can sing this demo, but we need to do it right now, you know." So that was the theme song to Revenge of the Nerds. You know, nerds,
1: nerds, or whatever it
2: was, you know. And so, you know, next thing you know, it's in the movie. It's the Reuben who's doing the theme song from It's the not Revenge just in the, the
1: movie. Nerds. I mean, it's in the title. So it's it's in the everywhere. Title track. It's everywhere. Yeah.
2: It well,
0: be
1: well t- take me back to that first time you met them, I mean I think most of us who have a favorite band you found out about the band by listening to your sister's cassettes or you found out about the band because it was your first big concert you went to at the cow palace these guys are at your high school and have endured this long I think that's kind of a rare thing was part of it that you got to meet them did you connect with them personally as much as the music or, or were, no, you, they, were you they, in a distance they
2: seemed like grown-up guys they seemed like literally from another generation I mean I I just really observed them, you know. Yeah. And there were a lot of us that, that, you know, would go in to see see bands on the weekends in Berkeley, you know, or or in the city. I mean, and you know, if, and and maybe like when Joan Jett came to town and played like a Wednesday night at the Keystone for the first time, there was about forty, fifty people there, and yeah. you know, the News were there, of course. <laughs> there's a there's a there's this photograph of the meters playing at the Long Branch in Berkeley, and in the audience there's like it's a photo like from the stage and then in the audience you just see everybody (laughs) you you can name every person
0: (laughs) so it was a small scene you know when you think about the Bay Area music um, it's really rich and diverse but a lot of this stuff just gets forgotten like I don't think you know if you ask someone to make a list off the top of their heads of Bay Area bands the Rubiners would not come up um how have they endured, and now they have a new album out. Is there a fan base out there for them? Have people stuck with them? Like what? Well, what's one of the, the things, challenge?
2: Well, there, there was a well. Everything's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> all <laughs> what's of it. A, I was gonna say, what's the challenge of like? Unis a challenge. Bringing a band, <laughs>
0: band like the Revenants, who were total cult act, back. Yeah. Kind of in.
2: Well, for me, what happened was uh, I, like I say, I followed these guys, and even though I, they weren't playing all the time. One of the things that happened was sometime, I believe, in the late 90s or the early aughts, um, Avril Lavigne, who couldn't have been any bigger at the time uh, for kids that don't remember the aughts, uh, (laughs) she came out with a song called um, Hey, Hey, You, You, I Don't Like Your Girlfriend. Hey, hey, you, you, I think you need another one or something like that. And the Revenus heard it and were like, wow, I mean, gosh, that sure sounds like a lot like, hey, hey, you, you want to be your boyfriend. And, you know, they, they brought it up. They brought it up to Avril and Avril had written the song with Dr. Luke and some of these heavy dudes who were real lawyered up and... They just kind of laughed and they said, no, nah, you know, and in fact, I think Avril had said in the press, oh, to me, it just sounds like the Rolling Stones, hey, hey, you, you get off my
1: cloud. And, and they were like,
2: well, be, be that as it may.
1: it's <laughs> not a great legal defense. I didn't rip off these little guys. I ripped off yeah, these yeah. big guys. They
2: were like, well, be that as it may. We still think that, you know, this happened. And, and, um, and, uh, and it became a pretty big story because yeah. she was really hot at the time. And everybody became aware of it, and there were these things. It was the early days of YouTube, and they did a mashup, and, you know. Eventually, they settled out of court, and one of the beautiful things that happened as a result of this lawsuit was that people in Japan, people in Spain, who had been trading those first two records a lot like some of us traded the first two big star records, you know, on cassette and stuff, They got on the internet and they're like, are you guys really still a band? They're like, well, kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. (laughs) And so the Ruben started going over to Spain and touring on a regular basis. I think they've done like 15 tours of Spain since, you know, the (laughs) 2000s. And also Japan. And so those first two records are much like, you know, the first two big star records. And um, I had been writing songs with Tommy uh, he lives in Sacramento now and I would take the Amtrak up there or he would come down here and we really honored our time together and the two of us when we get with two guitars I mean we just never run out of stuff to do you know and we just really have a great time together and we started writing songs and just kind of throw them, throwing them in a pile and then it looked like maybe they could be Reubenews songs and you know um, I'm losing my train of thought here but um, uh um I, I was in a – I, I, I was started to talk to the label that I'm on called Yep Rock Label, Yep, yep Rock Records. And I said, yeah, I'd like to do this, you know, I'd like to produce this record for this band, The Ruben Ooze, and And they said, well, you yeah, know, I don't know. And, in fact, I was playing a gig in North Carolina, and somebody from the label came up from Raleigh, and they came to the show, and the next morning we went to get some breakfast or something. They said, help us understand – just help us understand
0: what you're trying to do, and who tra- are
2: these guys, and what's you know, why would we want to do this? And I said, Well, and just a couple days earlier, I had been in a Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going somewhere with this. Just a couple of days earlier, I had been in a Trader Joe's, and I heard like a big star song, and I'm pushing my card around, and I just got kind of happy, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, um, um, uh, back of a car it wasn't uh september girls it's kind of a deep cut right and i was like wow you know the world's really changed supermarket music is now actually you know the creams rising to the top because of (sighs) maybe because of streaming or i didn't really i didn't really understand so i just impulsively i said well think of it think of these guys like Think of them like a West Coast big star. Right. <laughs> you know, they got two classic records that haven't been reissued, and they're like, so uh, how much money are we talking about? <laughs> and um, A van yeah, and a gas card. <laughs> they, yeah, a van and a gas card. <laughs> and they ponied up, you know. And we were able to make it. I mean, it, and, it, and it gets deeper than that because we were able to make a record the way they made the first two records, which is not, Which is no small thing, because they rehearsed a lot. They rehearsed every day after school. And then they recorded a lot of the first one at Wally Hyder's, which became Hyde Street over here, which is the longest-running, continuously-running studio maybe in California. And and they did a lot of their first record at what was CBS over here on Folsom, which later became the Automat, where The Clash did, give them enough rope and stuff. But... They're pretty sure that their first single, "Gorilla," that they did in 1975, which itself is a cover of a Defranco family song, <laughs> a Defranco family B-side, they're pretty sure that they did it in Studio A at Hyde Street, and so we went there. You know, yeah. and that's where we were able to make the record. We made it to tape because tapes, you know, although tapes more expensive and it kind of slows you down that's the way it used to be you know when people came in in the control room they really listened you know and, and tried to refine their part they didn't just get lazy because or complacent because now you know let's just face it you can fix a lot in a computer <laughs> so yeah so we were able to do it the way they did the first two records and 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 uh yeah brock afforded us the budget to do that and we had a lot of rehearsals you know what can i say
0: I mean, this is a fantasy. I'm I'm sure Peter has fantasized about like making an album with Rush and I've wanted, (laughs) you know, I've thought about making an album with the, like it would be a dream to make an album with Paul Westberg and the replacements. You actually got to do like this band that you grew up with, followed around. Like you actually got to go in the studio, write with them, make this album for them in the way of those two albums that you really loved. Um, What is, What's that experience like with:
2: Well, I, I, it was magic. I mean, riding with Tommy was magic um, because of his musicality and you know his his uh, deep knowledge of everything from you know uh, Italian pop music to the jackson five and and that was always a joy. And then when we started doing the like the living room rehearsals, uh, they would work out the four- part harmonies and stuff and maybe Donna would just play you know on his knees and they would have a guitar and um, I would just kind of sit in a chair and tap my foot and smile you know but I had a pad of paper because I'm the producer guy and so I was supposed to take notes every once in a while and what I ended up doing was anytime they wrote anytime they mentioned an influence or they referenced something I would write it down you know so it was like oh it's gotta be like you know like on the Love, sexy. I said, "What's love, sexy?" Oh, Charles Wright and the 103rd Watt Street <laughs> Rhythm Band, and okay, <laughs> and, and, you know, and and so it went, you know, uh, with, with uh, you know deep cuts by the Beach Boys or like Italian stuff or Japanese pop, and, and, and I would, uh, you know, I would seek that stuff out. So there, there just continued to be my education. Yeah, and that was a joy. I mean, that was just really something I didn't see coming. I want to mention too that when we were talking about um, the missing years you know uh, the thing that makes this record unique is that it's the four singers and that includes Dono the drummer and Dono his mother you know Claudine Don he was out of the band for like 10 years Mm -hmm. and he had substance abuse problems and and um, and although he would come and go in the band every once in a while he wasn't playing on the records and uh, and I think Part of what makes this record great is that it's that's the original guys and there's a thing they do. It's like it's hard to explain it, but it's like conversational, you know. Like musically, one guy can kind of finish the other guy's sentence, and we got it. You know, we got into this when we started getting into the, you know, what made those early records great, and without their four voices, it didn't have that growl, you know, or what what we call the Mike love, uh, element, you know, where, where whereas nobody here may be the biggest Mike love fan. He, <laughs> Beach boys without Mike love, it's a different animal, you know? I mean, you gotta have that Mike love voice in there. So I, the thing I'm particularly proud of this record is that it's, you know, the original guys all yeah. singing and playing together.
1: Yeah. Well, I got to, I got to listen to a few of the songs you sent them to me. Thank you very much. Enjoyed them greatly. Um, I think Honey from the Honeycombs was, was my favorite. I, I played that one the most. Yeah. And uh, that, that was clear.
0: Clear Montevani influence in that. Yeah, one. <laughs> well, there was a bespoke
2: song. I mean, that was definitely custom written for John because we were at Kelly's and there, were, there was a Burns guitar on the wall. And uh-huh. John said, Oh, man, Burns guitars. All the Honeycombs played Burns guitars. Oh, <laughs> I love Honey, you know, from and they talked about the honeycombs and I was like oh make a note of that (laughs) (laughs) so I came to Tommy with well I got this idea honey from the honeycombs you know
1: yeah and explain who the honeycombs are well the honeycombs were
2: Joe they were a band of hairdressers in like 1964 who um, had the distinction of having a a female drummer her name was Honey and uh, big hair you know up to here and and um, Joe Meek produced their record uh, kind of a kinky guy that produced Star and a bunch of weird like early st- I don't even know how to describe Joe Meek but they had a song called Have Either Right and it's like a weird kind of shuffle and it's a, just a very unique record and uh, yeah. you know what the Reuben is you just never know
0: I can't not be excited about listening to this album after hearing all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put it on right now. <laughs>
1: That's the owner's manual. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, album's out. Um, by the time people listen to this, they'll be able to buy it, I think. Uh, uh, well, I hope so. August 23rd, is that the Sounds good. Is that the date? Sounds good. And uh, on Yep Rock? Yep, rock records
2: and tapes. Yeah, what about and Burger th- cassettes out of uh, oh, Anaheim love, or Fullerton, love, California. Love the burger cassette guys. Yeah.
1: I talked to them for a story. Um, what about touring? Are, are they going to be around the Bay Area? Has that been decided yet? Yeah.
2: Well, they're going to play November first at the Chapel. Nice. And I believe I'm going to spend records that night. I think <laughs> Kelly Stoltz may also be on the bill, so that's pretty action packed. I'm going to spend strictly forty fives out of tommy's library yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah and then uh, uh do you feel like this is a uh one-time deal with these guys something you've done or, or are you i hope not them? i mean uh,
2: they they are very um very they're very c- close you know which is it's you know it's nice for me to be around people that just treat each other with such love and respect. I'm <laughs> like, boy, well, green on red. We could have really done things, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, if we weren't at war with each other, you know. But they're, yeah, they're very close, and they they rehearse a lot, and um, they really um, are, are, you know, a tight group. And uh, yeah, they 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 have continued to tour Spain, and they they go out. You know, one of the reasons why I really advocated for Dono was that I had seen some stuff on YouTube, and they go out to the east coast and um play you know a wfmu christmas party or whatever (laughs) and i don't know if you're familiar with wfmu out of jersey city if if anybody can load that app you won't regret it it's a it's a wonderful radio station out of jersey city non-commercial non
1: anything really (laughs) thank you for turning me on to the rubenews um I've become a very big Chuck prophet fan. I actually interviewed you a few years ago. Oh, I haven't forgotten. And and I had like heard a few of your songs, but I wasn't like immersed in it. And then I did a deep dive after that. So I've always felt a little, little, uh, uh, I don't know what I, that I got a late start on you. But um, I think well, I have a lot of
2: affection for you, Peter. And I I love you. <laughs> I like your soft voice. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, I really do. I like I like to listen to your podcasts. I love that you have this love for newspapers and for you know the chronicle and you know especially when you admitted recently that there was a time when you weren't such a great uh cheerleader yeah no
1: and 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 i was mostly quiet about it because i wanted to keep my job but um no it's been the last couple years have been been great i mean
2: uh, people don't talk about things when they're coming back i mean yeah uh, um you know have you been to Athens, Greece lately?
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: You you expect it to be, you know, and it's really come back and there's a lot of art scenes there and it's, you know, the the people don't talk about things when they come back. I've noticed that, you know.
1: I I just think it's a good time in San Francisco. There's so much in the headlines that's about things we need to fix and we need to fix things that I think it's also a really good time to celebrate the things that are still there are coming up and uh, uh, I think this fits in real well. I think it's so cool that you know, I would have been happy to talk Chuck Prophet stuff, and you're coming in here and like really enthusiastic about this band, and uh, I, I just like that you're a fan. Well, I'll take so a rain so. check on the Chuck Prophet <laughs> stuff if you want. <laughs> we're gonna come back and we're gonna get deep into Chuck Prophet. Um, <laughs> thank you for turning us on and, and our listeners on to the Rubenes, and um, and we'll have you back uh, when you've got a you've got a. Are we talking about uh, your your Play coming up? Is
2: well, we've got a musical that we're today. Actually, I'm going straight from here to the auditions, and uh, it's, we're going to mount it at the Alcazar for three nights awesome. in uh, February. Temple Beautiful, the musical. It's a, <laughs> it's, a song, it's a musical about a city under siege, yeah. and uh, <laughs> old versus new, tech versus luddite, and uh, it's a uh, pretty timely. Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty timely, and and uh, we you know we give everybody their say.
1: All right, well, I I hope you'll come back. I'd love to have you on and talk more about that. That's my favorite Chuck Prophet album. And uh, thanks for introducing us to the Reubenus. Oh, yeah. My pleasure, guys. Thanks. Thanks. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Ideen Vaziri and our guest, Chuck Prophet. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com with an S.